Hello, you're listening to The Selection Box from the Irishman Abroad Podcast Network. Over the past year, we've been recommending books, music, TV and comedy. And now with the holidays on the horizon and the challenge of entertaining the entire family at once looming large, I thought we'd recommend a family movie that everyone can enjoy. Clifford, the big red dog, is exactly that. Whether you have kids or you're looking after them for an afternoon this Christmas, get yourself to the cinema to see this. It is an instant classic starring my guest today, Jack Whitehall, who you probably already know from his ludicrously large body of work, including multiple stand-up specials, tours, seasons of shows like A League of Their Own, Travels with My Father and Fresh Meat. I've known Jack since he was a teenager and even toured with him doing stand-up together. And this man loves working. Uh, it just He just never stops. And when I was watching him play this kind of accident-prone, hapless uncle in Clifford the Big Red Dog, all I could think was how much work had gone into making this character as funny as he is. You'll see it for yourself when you go. There is a Michael Crawford quality to what he does here that I really wanted to talk to him about. What you're about to hear is the first half of my conversation with Jack Whitehall. To hear the rest of the conversation and to support me in making the show for the future, pop over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. There's so much more for you to enjoy over there, including hundreds of hours worth of interviews with Chris O'Dowd, Sharon Horgan, Dylan Moore and Ashling B, Blind Boy Boat Club, to name a few. And there's also, now for the first time ever, the full video version of this episode. So if you'd like to watch me chat to Jack on your telly, TV or uh, tablet, just head to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad and for a fiver a month or whatever you can afford, you can get all of that. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme, what's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! So, Jack, when uh, we arrive in and we start into Clifford the Big Red Dog, you know, our first meeting with you in it, there's just this silliness and joy and pratfalling kind of legs everywhere of you that immediately, that first fall you take, the first person I thought of in that moment was Michael Crawford. <laughs> and I thought... There, I don't know if I'm going to say this to Jack because I don't know if there's a bigger compliment you can pay someone in terms of physical comedy. Is he in your mind's eye or in the area of things that you're drawing from when you're trying to get, as you say, the tone and that level of hilarity that just brings families and kids into things like this? 
Yeah, definitely. Now, Michael Crawford is a legend and those types of performers are the people that I loved as well. When I was first, you know, drawn to comedy, it was people like him. It was Marin Atkinson. It was John Cleese. It was these very, you know, big physical performers. The other person as well that like I, I was literally brought up on his movies because my mum was obsessed with him was Norman Wisdom. And I, he's not the most fashionable person to kind of reference as yeah. uh, an inspiration. But, you know, these are the types of people that, like, I remember seeing for the first time on the screen and, and really being, you know, inspired by and, and, and thinking, you know, I'd one day love to do that. And I love physical comedy. I love, you know, even going back to kind of like silent movies, I, I, I really enjoy it as an art form and and always try and crowbar in as many pratfalls as I can to whatever I'm doing and love like kind of crafting a a kind of comic set piece and and working out how I can try and you know wring as much comedy out of a scene as possible um and so people really underestimate it though that's what I always think about that physical side of things because they just think oh you just have to run into the thing or you know fall down or hit the thing in the way you do but there's obviously rehearsal. There's there's so much going on underneath the water. Yeah. And also there's kind of there's a fine line, isn't there? That like if the fall actually looks sore, then that's no fun for anybody yeah, to yeah. watch. So true. So when you're, really, you're so yeah. right, though, it is like so you have to be so meticulous with it. And it is something that I'm like, I get obsessed over, maybe obsessed to a to a fault because I should be focusing on other things and, 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 you know, approaching these things as an actor rather than approaching them as a comedian, but I, I can't help myself. And all of those like physical moments are things that like, I, you know, I, I become really obsessed about like that first one with the guy with the, the kind of shopping trolley full of bottles that I run into, like we shot that maybe 10, 20 times. And, and every time I was running back behind the monitor to look at it again, and I'm like, no, it looks like I know that he's coming and I don't sell the fall properly. And he needs, to be like waiting until I'm just into the shot and then he needs to push it in front of me and then we film it again and then I get back up and dust myself down and go back over and talk to the director and I was like no I can do it better and then I was like maybe we could add an extra button when I'm running down the street and you know I realize that I've forgotten something and I run back and you know you film all of that and then it ends up getting cut completely from the film like the next scene that I'm in is a is a sequence where um, oh, I'm yeah. doing a job interview that goes really badly wrong. And that was another one where I just like threw everything at it. And there's a load more physical comedy that I'd kind of written into the scene. And and so often, you know, it, like when you actually watch it back, like that's the first stuff to go because it doesn't really progress the story in any way, shape or form, <laughs> but it's the stuff that I love the most. So whenever anything does end up in the, the finished edit of a film, I always feel like I've had a little win there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know the second scene you're talking about with the hand sanitizer and it, like there aren't too many spoilers in this movie, but I definitely wouldn't spoil the enjoyment of that because <laughs> there's so much on those. This is what I think about just in terms of the chips on these opening gags, right? Because you're it's your first time in this position. It's our first time seeing you in that role, in that place with this accent on the poster. Well, you're not on the poster, but you get my, my, my yeah. meaning here that you've got to hit these jokes out the door. It's like in some ways it is like those days when you weren't known as a stand up and the audience's mind is going to be made up within that first 30 seconds of being on stage. And sometimes people aren't clear on why stand up is a good background for doing these 
movies. But there had to be a part of you that was thinking that I got to be meticulous and hit these hard because their opinion of me as a character and how funny I am in this piece is going to be based on how these two gags go, right? Yeah, definitely. And also just looking at a scene and, you know, approaching it in the same way that a comedian approaches a routine. It's like you're trying to wring as many laughs as you possibly can out of it. And you want to like tag it and add buttons to every scene that you can. And it's impossible for me to do a scene in a movie like this and not think, right, have we worked out the funniest out to this scene that we possibly can? And that's one of the first things that I do when I you know, sign up to do a movie like this is like, I go, right, I need to now do a real like forensic pass on the script. And I'll sometimes do it on my own. I'll sometimes do it with like my writing partner, Freddie, who actually helped with this one. And we took the script away together and we looked at it and we were like, right, how can we add 15 more jokes to this script? And where can we try and, you know, wring a little bit more humor out of it? And I love that process. And it's great as well for me, like learning that even if you're on a big film like that, and it is this kind of big budget, um, you know, studio movie, they're so willing to let you do that because at the end of the day, they just want the best product that they can get. And they've probably had like 15 writers working on the script up until the point that you've signed on to do it. And, you know, they're not precious about it. They just want it to be as funny as it can be. And the same was true with Jungle Cruise as well, which was like, you know, a $200 million movie. And, I was quite nervous about stepping onto it because I was like, am I going to be able to, you know, put my kind of imprint on it? And am I going to be able to, to, to do these things that I would do with any project that I I'm involved in? Is it going to change now? Because it's, you know, a much bigger project and the stakes are so much higher, but even with that, like, you know, I realized very early doors that like, again, they're the same. They just, they, they want you to bring all of that stuff. And Jungle Cruise, I shot like hours and hours and hours of jokes that again, did not make the, finished <laughs> of the film. whole mornings where it would just be me on set. And, you know, I'd be doing like these bits because <laughs> they had time in the day to let me do them. And I was like, Oh, we could do this extra little joke here. And if you look at the, um, like deleted scenes of the DVD of Jungle Cruise or it's on Disney plus as well. Now there's like 15 scenes and all of them (laughs) are just like physical jokes and like visual jokes that I had done um, that, you know, again, didn't progress the story. story. But even if one of them makes it in, it's worth it. Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask next, because obviously when you're writing your own sitcoms, I mean, you were the one making the calls in a lot of ways. Yeah. And there is that kind of offering it up. To a certain extent, we all do that in our jobs until we're the boss. You you go, well, I, 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 can't, I, I can't lose sleep over that. But I often find that with comics, that's particularly hard because there's so much belief in, look, trust me, this is going to work. Yeah. Is that hard at all? Because I think we can all imagine what we're talking about here. There's bits that are on the cutting room floor that you're like, I mean, that's 10 times funnier than what went in, yeah. but it didn't move along the story. Yeah. Are you sometimes of the belief that like one or two that don't move along the story, making it in is worthwhile because as you say, it elevates the product. Yeah, definitely. It's a weird one as well. It's certainly a bit of a learning process because the reality is like now having been involved in the edits of, of films, like I just made a movie where I'm, a bit more involved in the edit of it and watching it as a whole whole thing and and, Peace, and, yeah. and 
treating it as a film rather than just a, a, a series of jokes, you do realise you do need to sacrifice quite a lot of stuff for story. And that's the most important thing is, you know, like their momentum and uh, like making sure that you're in the right kind of emotional, your, your audience is in the right emotional place and that you're not distracting them with jokes when you don't need to be. There is, yeah. there, that is a learning process for me as well. But it is, yeah, it's sad sometimes when you know that there's something that's really funny that the world's never going to see. The one in Jungle Cruise that I became obsessed over was this joke that I wrote into it with the director, which was that on the boat, like, we established that there was a bucket in the corner that was the bucket that you um, relieved yourself into. And then me and Jama, uh, the director, like, had this running joke that like I was horrified by this bucket. Like my character could just not think of anything worse than the idea of relieving himself into a bucket. And there were endless references to this disgusting bucket that was on the corner of the boat. And then there's a scene where we're going down these rapids and I'm being flung around the boat. And Jama, who comes from a background of shooting horror films, shot this amazing sequence where every time I turn, this bucket is like stalking me around the boat. And he shot it like a horror film with all these like crash zooms and uh, like... Head turns and it was like it was it was like it was stalking me. My worst nightmare: the poo bucket stalking me around the the boat. And I loved it so much. And uh, when I saw the edit of the film, it wasn't in it. And I actually ended up calling the producer. I was like, "How have you caught the 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 bit with the bucket? It was so funny." And he was like, "I'm really sorry, Jack, but it took quite a long time, and it was a lot of real estate um, devoted." To a joke that is essentially <laughs> about a bucket that all of the characters shit in, and I don't think Disney were necessarily as much of a fan as it of it as you. So it is going to be one that I'm afraid is uh, going to be added to the pile of deleted scenes. I mean, here we are talking about a bucket of shit and, <laughs> and its place in a Disney movie, and it does bring up this side of things that I always I can kind of feel whenever I see comics in movies. Particularly comics that have done like late night comedy, <laughs> that there must be a, a dial that you have to turn to to get in this place for this comedy and in the promotion of it, which is essentially the second half of the work, is going yeah. around the world telling people about it and nearly flipping the switches to turn off the jokes that you would do in those situations am i wrong on that no no that's definitely the case and there's i think again like probably a sort of frame of mind that you have to be in because you don't want to self-censor yourself when you're improvising and you're throwing stuff at it and trying to work out what's funny i mean you have to do a degree of that and obviously you're not going to start like swearing like a trooper <laughs> but um it's also good to just remember that there is an edit and they can take anything out. So you shouldn't be too inhibited, but it is certainly a, a shift uh, tonally to kind of tweak what you naturally would say in situations and to work out how you can try and create comedy that kind of works for that much broader audience. And, and, and in that context, which is why you end up leaning into doing physical jokes because that works for any audience in any language and is the kind of the most universal comedy that you can really do. So, you know, that always feels like pretty safe terrain. But then also, I think when you can get something in that feels like, you know, you've, 
you've just you, you've just got away with one. And when you've got a joke in there that like in Clifford, there's a joke about Burning Man, which I fought really hard for them to keep in. And I love that it, it can have the odd joke like that where you know you're making something that's a reference that's going to fly over all of the kids' heads and and is something that's like you know for the parents. And mm. I think it's important to to again like just make sure that you you do pitch a couple of those because every now and again something uh, does make its way through all of the producers and the machine and and, and ends up in the, the the finished product and and it's always like a little kind of you know Easter egg for for, for well, older audiences. You, you you know my wife's a teacher and I'm always aware that you know she is you know biting her tongue in school so I'm always amazed at the language that comes out of her mouth when she comes home afterwards. Is it the same way that after being on the set like that that you like you get home and say all the stuff that you want to say? Or do you, you know, in a Daniel Day-Lewis way, fully method it out that that's who you are now? These are the jokes I do at home now, because the risk is if you get back into that mode, you can't get back into the other when you go on set. Well, when I was shooting Clifford, I was also warming up for my last tour. And so I was doing gigs in the evening in New York and going off to comedy clubs. So I definitely think I got a lot out of my system um, yeah. in those those routines. And probably the reason that my last tour was just so crude and there were so many obscene jokes and uh, I, uh, you know, spent most of my time on stage in the gutter was probably because when I was building that set during the day, I was filming Clifford the Big Red Dog yeah. and was having to bite my tongue for so long. Well, like there's so many uh, bits in it that I, I want to ask you about, right? But I do want to go back to, you know, little Jack, who's obsessed with Disney movies. And as you say at the start, watch these family things the way we all did. We turned on and just it unified you as a group. It was something that all the family could appreciate. It's the hardest thing. Like if Kanye says it's hard to write pop songs, it's the hardest thing. It should get most respect in many ways, being able to put together something as you say, crosses boundaries that is able to make every single person laugh is the hardest thing. And I've often thought that about your stand up, that it does not downplay the idea that it is hard to get your mom to laugh while your niece and nephew are laughing. Now, the scene that really did it for me was the wagging of the tail and you cling to the tail and being battered around the room on the back of a 10 foot dog's tail. Yeah. And all, like as much as it was hilarious physically and just the timing of it and the way, you know, you portrayed it, I, you just can't help thinking throughout this. How did they do that? Like, how was that pulled off? Can you give us a little breakdown of how they constructed a hydraulic tail of some sort for you to cling on to? Or have I got all kinds of uh, never ending story notions here? It was surprisingly um, rudimentary, really. It was literally just two big units from the props department holding a three foot tail that was on the end of a stick and wagging it backwards and forwards. Me in a harness clinging on for dear life. And then at the opportune moment being flung around the room. Like, uh, you know, I was doing a pantomime Peter Pan and I was on the, you know, on the court, just <laughs> sw swung around the room. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it, they were all pretty physical uh, stunts. They all actually, you know, we had like, 
it was that was the weirdest thing as well is that the, the the set was littered with Clifford body parts because for all of the close-up work and every time you had to interact with the dog they needed a uh, you know a, a specific uh, palpable prop that resembled Clifford's tongue Clifford's tail Clifford's head uh, on a stick was used for quite a lot of the scenes it was a uh, yeah it, it, it was it was yeah, there was a lot of moments where you're on set and you're doing something and you're like this feels ridiculous. Is this going to look okay in the end? Because, uh, like, yeah, I'm I'm literally clinging on to a big three foot uh, red tail that's being operated by yeah two guys, <laughs> two gigantic guys. Yeah. Now, I, I I know that uh, you know we've kind of talked about the the physical side of it, but so many comics I know started out that way that you were. Either there, you were. I find comics are either the class clown, or the person at the back of the room, nudging the person next to them, going, "I'm funnier than that class clown is a dope." <laughs> I don't know why everyone's laughing at this. Listen to this snidey remark. I feel like there, there, there's roughly two categories. You're definitely, by all accounts, that person who wanted to show off and be at the center of attention in school. That's correct. Definitely yes. Okay. <laughs> Definitely okay. Charles Blanc. Now, you you said in the past that once you find find your outlet, then you can tend to settle a little bit. As uh, and and you do see that with comics. You found that while at uni with your first stand up shows, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I retracted inwards. Then it was like on two bases. The first was now that I was doing stand-up, people wouldn't allow me to do jokes anywhere else. Yeah. They were definitely. like, don't, don't do stand-up now. <laughs> We've decided yeah. where you're doing jokes and it's up there. Yeah. How was that? And was, or was that, that was the case for you too? Yeah. You can't humorously observe anything for the rest of your life because you'll be called out for doing a bit. And so I definitely found myself you know, trying to be less funny in social situations and realising that if I did, I would be called out on it by all of my friends. And it's um, tough. Yeah, I know. It you kind of to... feeds the addiction as well, though, doesn't it? Yeah. Because you then are like, oh, well, now I can only do this here. And when I do it, I have to pare down these observations into <laughs> kind of justifying why you've given me this spot. Yeah. But I, it I... also it means now maybe I might get away with you know, if I'm doing a little bit less stand-up and, you know, I'm doing more acting, then I might be able to be funny again in real life because people might cease to associate me with stand-up as much so I can then do funny bits and be funnier in social situations and no one's going to mm. call me out for doing a bit. They'll be like, oh, yeah, this actor from Cliff of the Big Red Dog's quite amusing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's nearly why <laughs> Graham Norton exists in so many ways, yeah. is to actually get real life stories out into the world without the aid of stand up. Now, obviously, you know, yeah. when stand ups are doing bits on Graham Norton. But what I always think with you is strange is that embarrassing moments seem to magnetize themselves to you and you love the comedy of the embarrassment. But they do gravitate towards you. <laughs> in a weird kind of way. Now, have you throughout your life thought, okay, I'm now engineering these these moments that I can now turn into stand-up and that I can now, you know, tell people about? Or do they just happen and you think to yourself, okay, 
get that noting down what is happening right now because this is going to be a bit i think with, with with quite a lot of those moments like they tend to happen for the same reason which is you know they, they tend to be born out of a social awkwardness which i definitely have like i definitely overthink social interactions and get into a bit of a panic sometimes and i'm so sort of like desperate to like not offend or be polite or you know not make a tit out of myself that I overcompensate and then that makes the situation worse. So I think, you know, a lot of the, the the situations that I, that I find myself in do tend to be because I have that mindset in life. And so, yeah, that's, that's why I think those moments tend to happen to me, but in terms of like, you know, thinking about them in the moment and going, Oh, this would be a great routine. I think I'm like, in such a panic when they're happening that it never really feels to me like this could ever be spun into comedy at the time. It always just feels like actual uh, Get me out of here. horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, like you, you've now been quoted in the last month as saying that, you know, you're going to take some time away from it. Now, when I listen back to those things, I was like, no, no, that sounds like somebody who's you know done a lot of stand up and needs a bit of time to himself to generate more stand-up, less so than a, you know, I'm Michael Jordan and I'm hanging up my shoes now and come back with a new number maybe at some point in the future. Is that the case, that it's much more like, just let me have some time that I need to gather some opinions to go again? Definitely. I think gathering opinions, gathering life experience, just taking some time off and you know, trying to kind of reevaluate maybe what you want to say or what you want to talk about. And I think with stand-up, it's important to try and do that, especially if your life is sort of dominated by work and you're spending all of your time, you know, in quite surreal, unrelatable situations and on sets and filming things and doing promotion tours and all of that like that's not the best you know source material for stand-up comedy so I think it's important for me to to go away and kind of live my life and and come back to it when I've got more stuff to talk about and you know I feel like I will and even now like it's been a couple of years since my last tour and I was like at the end of it I definitely want to stop for a bit because I don't want to you know retread the same territory and I you know there's certain uh, things that I talk about on stage that I'm like, I can't do another show where I'm just doing material about my dad or it can't all be jokes about being posh and I need to try and find something else that, you know, is going to be interesting and different and, and, and it's going to be subject matter that I can, you know, write something that will feel funny and fresh about. But, you know, it's what been like over two years now since my last tour and already like there are, you know, I've now in a long-term relationship, which I haven't been for a while. And that's kind of, you know, something that I feel like I'll be interested in talking about um, maybe on stage. And I've got a dog and I'm, you know, uh, spending, you know, more time kind of like traveling on my own. And, you know, that 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 always throws up um, situations and, and experiences and uh, people that, you know, you, you want to oh, talk yeah. about and um, yeah i mean it's the gift that keeps giving really the relationship <laughs> the dog i mean it's tough though on some like sometimes i think that you can't complain you know there's there's it must be like if you think about it i always think 
that there must be a level that you reach where it's like nobody wants to hear it. You know, there's very few people that you can go to and say, this is a real pain because so many people think you're so fucking lucky. What, what are you like? God, I give anything to have what you have. There, there must be a decreasing circle of people that you can actually moan, moan to. Yeah. As things go better and better for you. Yeah. Who are those people? But then I guess like you just need to work out the things that you can moan about regardless and people yeah. sort of buy into that. Mm. Like things like relationships, like everyone experiences that. And, you know, that's always going to be something that you can kind of mine for comedy in a way that people will, you know, relate to it on at least some level. But I, I always think the one thing that slightly liberated me from having the fear of, you know, not being able to do stand-up comedy about subject matter that, you know, people can relate to on any level is that I've never really had a life that anyone can relate to <laughs> on any level. And I've never really been in a situation where I have anything to complain about. I am just mm. like the face of white privilege and this like, you know, posh, uh, entitled kid that grew up with a really nice family and went on lots of holidays and then ended up on stage. And it's like, <laughs> there's no trauma. There's no underdog, you know, aspect to me. It's like, it's all ridiculous. So it's always been ridiculous. So it's not like that's ever changed. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. And I know, look, and I hear everything you're saying and I, I hear all of that. And I, I've heard you even, you know, reference the lack of struggle and how, that probably pushes you towards those things that you say, I can't do another show that's about all that stuff and how silly it is and how absurd it is that this has been my existence and this is what's resulted from it. But it must be tricky enough when it can feel like people are like, but you make great Carlsberg. Why are you trying to do cider now? Like people know you for this this thing that they they consume in huge quantities and they want to like it's like once they you know they talk about finding your voice you very much found it you very much found it really early on and then it's like people fall in love with that voice so much that they're like i'd watch this voice read the phone book take me on trips with his father just keep giving me more of this that must make it then trickier to go I'm going to take a couple of years to try and figure out if there's something else I can do. Yeah. I think it's just, it just has to be development. There has to be, it just has to feel kind of evolution, fresh it every now and again. Otherwise, I don't know. You fall into the trap of sort of treading the same water. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I hope I'll be able to kind of, I hope I'll be able to develop, but I mean, it's never going to be like a massive departure. I don't think I'm going to <laughs> come back on and, you know, be doing a, a completely different act and, you know, all of a sudden doing like, I don't know. A, I don't a know, a guy from New York, a clumsy guy from New York. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like we say this and you, I have to talk about doing that voice, like literally doing it in an American accent, this movie had to come with a certain amount of fear for all the reasons that we just talked about that like people love that voice and you know the embodiment of you it's in many ways 
like people would the Tom Cruise thing they're like it's not Tom Cruise is not the character we just want to see Tom Cruise in those settings of doing these things that when you jump into Clifford in an American accent there had to be a certain amount of fear as to well this isn't kind of my vehicle any anymore and there's a fear that you could get it wrong yeah definitely and also it's just like you feel uh, you know like i know how to make things funny in my own voice and mm. i know all of the different pitches and registers that i can do and intonation intonations and it's uh, challenging to try and like re assess those and and to to work out how you can make it funny when you're also doing it in an accent and also improvising it's like it's it's fine to prepare a scene in an American accent and work out how you can make each thing funny and make it also work and, you know, sound right for the accent. But it's the minute you start improvising, you go off piste mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you're doing it without a safety net and the director shouts cut. And then you ask if it was funny and if he liked it and he's like, yeah, it's good. But I mean, that accent just went all over the place. <laughs> and again, you have to slightly like just... Uh, have the faith that you can fix it in in post and that if you do say something really funny and you know your accent slip then you can go in and you know adr it in a sound booth a couple of months later or do another take and try and get it right and and yeah but it but it is it it was definitely a challenge but i was really keen to do it i've had other projects where i've meant to be doing it american and then they've gone no i think you should just do it in english because you're funny in english (laughs) and then i've done it in english and and then on this one, I was like, he sort of has to be American because they can't. Not every character in that movie can be English. It's such an yeah. iconic sort of American, like piece of IP. Like it would be weird if it was all British characters and this was one American girl. So I had to commit to doing the accent, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed doing the, the, the challenge of trying to make it funny in in an American accent. So there you have it. It's the first half of my conversation with Jack Whitehall. In the second half, we get into his attempts to to be a child actor and how pushy his parents were in that endeavour. We do get into a lot of parenting stuff and advice that he's received from his father. Whether there's a line in terms of what he will talk about in relation to his family. Cancel culture comes up. We, we talk about that very scary prospect for comedians that started in a time when it was kind of nothing was off limits where the crack is for him and of course there's our now infamous lightning round for you to enjoy as I said it's all over there on patreon.com forward slash Irish massive thanks to everyone who supports this show it just can't go on without that support and speaking of support why not go and see Clifford the big red dog this Christmas with a small one I recommend bring a kid that loves dogs but it's just a fun family movie that is going to be around for a long time one that'll be popped on I'd imagine every Christmas it's really great to uh, have Jack on the show I'd love you to hear the rest of this conversation it is it is a cracker and as always in the second half of these interviews things go every direction so pop over to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad to hear that now Brian Connolly's on sound, Tina and Mikey make it all possible, and I will chat to you on Tuesday with Sonia O'Sullivan. <laughs>